0: we've had uh some clients have candidates score very high in in drive, almost every single candidate that they've assessed. And so we've asked them, what do you look for on a resume that so consistently predicts these high drive scores? And they've said, well, they really look for three different things. Number one, of course, they look for the person that's more of a passive job seeker, if you will, than an active job seeker, because oftentimes if the person has been actively out there looking for a while in the world of sales, there can be a good reason for it. So they tend to look for the folks that are a little bit more passive.
1: Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. It's Tom Abbott here. Welcome to another episode of the Selling in Asia podcast. I am so excited to have with us today, Dr. Christopher Croner. Now, Dr. Christopher Croner, he's the principal with SalesDrive, and it's a firm that specializes in the selection and the deployment of high-performing salespeople. Now, Dr. Croner is also the co-author of the book, never hire a bad salesperson. Again, (laughs) I love that title, which details his research and practice in identifying the non-teachable personality traits common to top producers. So I'm so excited about this topic here today. Welcome, Dr. Christopher Croner. Hey, how are you doing, Chris? If you want to take your sales skills to the next level and learn how to master the entire sales process, join SoCo
0: Academy and get certified in SoCo selling. The link is in the notes. Tom, I am doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the opportunity to be of
1: service. Hey, it's my pleasure. This topic is one that is near and dear to my heart. I love that book title, Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again. Can you just tell us a little bit about how that
0: came about? Oh, good question. So when trying to figure out a good way to get attention or or, or, uh, encapsulate what we had talked about it in a way that people would pay attention to. Uh, people, one of the biggest pains that most business owners have that they can identify with is having someone who looked great in the interview who ended up underperforming. I can tell you when I give a presentation, one of the first questions I like to ask at the beginning is, you know, out, out of the in group here, out of the group present, raise your hand if you've ever felt burned by a sales candidate who looked great in the interview but ended up underperforming. And there's this emotion. It's not just me even raising hand. There's this emotion that comes in. So we thought that title, Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again, which speaks right to that pain that so many folks have, would be an effective way to communicate. Here's what we're going to offer
1: you in this book. I love that, Chris. That's awesome. So, um, I, And I've, I've worked with you before over the over the years. It's probably been about three or four years now. We've actually used your services in, in, in making sure that we never hire a bad salesperson again. And you identify that there are three, you refer to them as, as three elements of, of drive. Mm-hmm. What, can you tell us a little bit about what is drive
0: and what are those three elements? Sure, of course. So, uh, in terms of the three elements of drive, going back, one of the questions we we'll often get related is, again, how did you derive those characteristics? You know, with these three elements of drive. And specifically, they are number one, need for achievement. When we talk about the need for achievement, we're talking about the person who wants to do well, simply for the sake of doing well. So the person high in need for achievement, they just naturally want to set the bar high. They want to jump over that, and they want to set it even higher again the next time. So they're constantly focused on producing excellence just for the sake of excellence. And it's interesting, Tom, because the research shows that characteristic need for achievement it's important not only for salespeople, but also incidentally for entrepreneurs. People have to kind of get up every morning and make it happen and there's nobody standing over them watching them. So as you can imagine, as companies are now in many cases having to hire a bit more remotely, Mm -hmm. we're finding that characteristic just continues to become more important. So that's the first piece. So so, Chris, are these these like, you know, some people refer to them
1: as self-starters. Is it, you know, same, same, but different? Can you say a little bit about that? Exactly.
0: Exactly. So when we look at the need for achievement, again, that piece of it where the person just wants to do well for its own sake, that's exactly what they are. Self-starters. They're constantly, again, they're they're sort of like that kid in school that just has to get high marks. It's that particular dedication and focus. They just want to do well for its own sake. They're constantly raising the bar for themselves, constantly jumping over that, raising it again the second time. It's an area many people don't think about when they think of salespeople. They think, oh, I want somebody with the gift of gab, or I want somebody who's just very persuasive. Well, those things are great, but you can teach those you can teach persuasion, you can teach relationship skills. But past the age of 21, 22, I'm sure we'll talk about, you can't do much to change drive, but one of the elements of which is that need for achievement. So that's why we look at that so heavily. Wow, I love that, Chris. So, you know, and look, for
1: everybody watching and listening out there, you're hearing some, some distinctions. So we're talking about things like persuasion, which can be taught, which can be learned. You can read a book on persuasive techniques or more effective communication. But it sounds like drive, this inner need for achievement, you've either got
0: it or you don't got it. Is that right, Chris? Correct. Correct. About about the age of 21, 22. So there's that first piece, need for achievement. On top of that, the second piece, just briefly, is competitiveness. And the competitive salesperson, we find, really wants to do two things. Number one, they want to be the best on their team. They're always comparing their performance to their peers. But number two, they want to win that client or that customer over to their point of view. Because to them, uh, psychologically, that sale is kind of like a contest of wills. And the (laughs) third piece, of course, is optimism. And that's the salesperson's sense of certainty that they will succeed, as well as, of course, the resiliency to hang in there when they face the inevitable rejection that a salesperson just has to deal with. So we find it's those three characteristics all together, Tom. Need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism that psychologically create. It's sort of the perfect storm, if you will. And yes, collectively, we refer to those three characteristics as driving past the age of about 21, 22. There's not much we can really do to change it. It's kind of either it's, it's there or it's not. It's kind of that combination of nature and nurture as the person grows up, if you will.
1: Right. I love this. You know, we, we talk about this all the time. People ask me, Tom, can sales skills, you know, are sales skills and sales competencies, are these, are these born or bred? And I say, well, it, it depends. Right. Some of them, some of them you're born with. Um, and by born with, I mean, it's, it's, uh, as you say, Chris, and I'm glad to hear you talk about this age of 21 or 22. So it's either you've, you've got it by a certain age or you don't. And it sounds like drive is one of those things. And then some other things which are more skills can be yes. developed and picked up. Those are things that can be that can be bred. So I want to talk a little bit uh, deeper if we can about this a need for achievement, because I love this. <laughs> I mean, I'm a sports guy. I've listened to your podcast as well. I can tell you're probably a basketball fan. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, we, we do love our basketball here in Chicago. Yeah. Right. And you talk about Michael Jordan a lot, who to me is the goat. He's the greatest of all time. And, you know, uh, what I love about Michael Jordan is he's got this need for achievement and and it and it never ends. And you either love it or hate it. But, you know, it's like some people would be satisfied with winning a game or they'd be satisfied with, you know, coming out as season champion or winning the NBA championships once. And they go, oh, my God, this is amazing. I've achieved my goal. He's like, no, Mm -hmm. I think I need six. You know, or Uh I need more and more and more. And it never ends. I'm a huge tennis fan. So for me, the greatest of all time is Roger Federer. And I love this guy. And he, it doesn't matter. So many times people have thought he should maybe retire because he's done everything. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like for these people who have this constant need for achievement, they never believe they've done everything. Can you say a little bit more about that?
0: Right, right. And we talk about the other example we give in our book is Tiger Woods. You know, he won his Grand Slam championship. There was a reporter, I believe, for the Sun-Times said, Tiger, you've done it all. There's nothing left for you to do. And he just looked at the guy like he was nuts. He said, no, you're never there. It's that mentality. You're exactly right. If you see that, uh, the Netflix special, yeah. uh, The Last Dance talks about Michael Jordan, talks about that dedication that he had. Uh, that's that desire to do well for its own sake. And sometimes I'll get a question that'll come up similar to that, you know, after a presentation, what leads to that? You know, what causes somebody to have? that need for achievement. And again, it's nature and nurture. So on the nature side, there's the way the person is born. There's an element of what psychologists call conscientiousness, achievement striving. You know, again, it's that kid that just, as I mentioned, has to get an A, if you will. They've got that, they have to get high marks in in school. But then there's the combination of that. With the kid who's held accountable for their behavior by, by their parents. The parents hold them accountable in some way. It could be many different ways. It could be accountable for their academic performance. It could be accountable for watching the brothers and sisters. It could be accountable for playing a sport. It could be accountable for playing an instrument. Many different options. But there's the natural wiring combined with being held accountable as a child growing up that again, by the person, by the time they're in their late teens or early 20s, it's relatively solidified. And it's a very powerful characteristic because again, so many people will say, oh, I want somebody who's motivated by money. Now you don't want the person who's just motivated by money. There's a subtle distinction there, but it's that need for achievement that will carry the day. So it's almost, they would do, I love this, Chris.
1: So it's almost as though they would do it even without the money because they just want ah. to win. Like they, so that leads to the competitiveness. Can we talk about the competitiveness part?
0: Yes, exactly. And that's where that comes in a bit as well, because the competitive person, again, they want to be the best among their, their peers. So it's not that in terms of uh, their relationship with money, there's sort of a subtle distinction there. Um, When you get the person, for example, we'll get get many sales managers who will come to us with frustration saying, you know, Dr. Croner, we've had several members of our team just have not performed well. They get up to a certain level of production and they level off and we can't figure out why. And during that conversation, I'll ask them, well, what do you look for on the hiring side? Well, they'll say, well, I want someone who's motivated by money. So we make sure the person has say, a mortgage, a couple of car payments, kids in school, all these external factors that are motivating them. And then they can't figure out why they get up to a certain level of production and then they just level off. Well, yes, certainly those external factors can be very motivating. Certainly the person, if they're motivated by money, that can compel them up to a point. But generally, if the person is motivated by money, they're motivated by a lifestyle. They get up to a certain level of production and now they've satisfied those external pressures or that lifestyle they were really going after. And now they know what they need to kind of phone in quarter after quarter just to maintain. Whereas the person motivated by need for achievement, will continue to excel. They'll continue to produce. Money's still important to them, but they look at money the same way that a great athlete like Michael Jordan looks at points in the scoreboard. It's how they show how well they've done rather than their goal in and of itself, which I know is a subtle distinction, but always giving them the opportunity to earn unlimited commissions, they'll love that because that's unlimited points they can put in the scoreboard.
1: I, I love that. So it's, it's never ending, is it, right? It's it's like they 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 always wants to constantly compete and I love what you talk about competing with themselves, right? Yes. Can I be a better version of myself today than I was yesterday? And yes. also, hey, competing with your 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 peers, compete, you know, you want to be the top salesperson in the organization, right? Yes.
0: Yes, <laughs> it's that, it's sort of like again, it goes back to wanting to compare compare their performance to everyone else almost like a kid, you know, they they want to they want to be able to see that at the end of the day their, their their scores were higher you know they've got that mentality of just wanting to win and they need an index that's why michael jordan You always need an index always need to c- compare to himself to other people on the team he wants to be the best and it goes without saying i know there was one of the episodes of the last dance where there was a reporter who asked him you know i think before their uh their olympic outing you know if it comes down to it at the end of the game how's this going to go i said i'm going to have the ball how why, why would you even ask that question you know it's that sort of
1: mentality so And that's Michael Jordan with the best of the best, right? This was the dream, right? 92 Olympics, the dream team. It's literally the best, I would say, the best basketball players of all time. No doubt. And And yet he is no doubt the top dog on that team. And, and in, mm-hmm. in his mind, he believed that as well. It's just, it's phenomenal. So then the third piece of drive you talk about is optimism. And I'm a huge fan of this. In fact, that's actually one of my signature strengths. It's one of my top three. I did mm-hmm. one of these assessments years ago and and optimism and hope, believing that you can always succeed despite challenging situations has mm-hmm. always been part of my drive. So this is why this talk is so special to me. Can you tell us a little bit about the about optimism and why it's so important in the sales
0: role. Of course. So when it comes to optimism as I mentioned, we're, we're looking for the person that is certain that they will succeed. Just just like you mentioned, you know, they want to do they want to they want to make sure that no matter what happens, their focus is always on the positive. They can get knocked down, they want to get right back up. It's that sort of mentality. The door gets slammed in their face, they know they will knock on that next door with that much more certainty and passion and conviction. And that's really what, what Props the person up, if you will. In many cases, at the end of the day, when they've had a bad day, because when you think about the person, as I mentioned, that's going to be able to go out as a hunter salesperson, knock on that door, whether that's again, as I mentioned, in person or over the phone, get the door slammed in their face, then knock on that next door with that much more certainty and passion and conviction. Psychologically, again, it's that optimism that allows them to do that. They are certain that they will do well. They know that if that last call didn't, didn't didn't go as well as they would like. They can make the next call better. They know that they have a system for doing so, a consistent system for calling and calling and calling. They know that the next call is going to go well. They don't get hung up. They don't get too hung up on one call that didn't go well because well, they don't they don't look at that as a permanent issue. It's something that's temporary. They can they can get past that. They have that certainty that they will do well because they were raised essentially in that way that's again that's that combination of nature and nurture but sometimes people ask me how do you you know how do you raise a child who's optimistic well the classic example i know is the having a kid who's maybe, maybe a little has climbed a little bit higher than they would like to in a tree and they feel stuck and of course the parent's desire is to walk up to that tree and and, and grab the kid and, and help them down and say oh, oh thank goodness you're safe but then another parent may say something like well Let's gently coax the child down. And they, and they gently allow the child to climb down on their own and then walk up to the child and say, say to them, I knew you could do it. Those are two very different experiences. But oh. you see how that combination of, again, nurture and nature, by the time the person's in their late te- teens, early 20s, those, that's relatively a solidified characteristic, if you want.
1: Very interesting. I love that. And, and, and I like this thing that you talk about optimism, you know, it reminds me of that quote from Winston Churchill, who says, uh, success consist, consists of going from failure to failure without loss
0: of enthusiasm. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because again, failure is a judgment in many cases. Oftentimes people who are optimistic, they have a system for success. They know that they're going to, they're going to diversify, if you will, their efforts. They know many will not necessarily go well, but one will. And that's their system. And they recognize that at the beginning. So they don't get too caught up. And this didn't go well. That didn't go well. This was a failure. That was a failure. They, they have, they, again, they have a system whereby they're going to make 20 calls. They know that one of those calls will work. And they're not going to worry about the other 19, if you will. So it's that it's that sort of mentality.
1: I love that. It reminds me of this quote by Mark Cuban. And he says, every no brings me closer to a yes.
0: Exactly. So
1: you've just exactly. got to have that mindset. And, and it sounds like that's something that can't be taught. You've either got that or you don't have that, right? Correct. So Correct. let's talk about how we find people who have that. So um, are there specific markers or, or indicators on a candidate's resume that might give you some clues? Because everybody's writing resumes these days. They're, they're taking courses, they're downloading templates online, and they're really trying to put together these perfect resumes. What are some of the things that we as as hirers, as sales leaders should be looking for as indicators in these resumes to try to give us clues as to whether or not they could possibly
0: be a good fit? Yes, good question. We've had uh, some clients have candidates score very high in, in drive, almost every single candidate that they've assessed. And so we've asked them, what do you look for on a resume that so consistently predicts these high drive scores? And they've said, well, they really look for three different things. Number one, of course, they look for the person that's more of a passive job seeker, if you will, than an active job seeker, because oftentimes if the person has been actively out there looking for a while in the world of sales. There can be a good reason for it. So they tend to look for the folks that are a little bit more passive. Number two, of course- okay, sorry, for- sorry. Let,
1: let, let's not go over that one too quickly if we can, not Chris. So sure. when you say passive versus active, I imagine what you mean is when you get a a resume from a candidate and they've been job hopping, so they've maybe been at a job for you know uh, uh, six months, a year, a year and a half, and they keep changing roles. That could be an indicator that they kind of give up when
0: the going gets tough. Is this is this what you mean? Ah, that's a very and that, that anticipates my next point, which which is the job hopper. So. Ah, that, that is absolutely an important. We always want to avoid job hoppers. When I'm speaking about the passive versus active candidates, the active candidate we describe as someone who's been actively out there looking for a long time. So they're, they're actively shopping their, their resume around versus the passive candidates that's, that's not shopping their resume around that maybe you have to find through LinkedIn. Maybe you have to do some research on your own and you find that candidate who has great experience that, that you're oh, looking for, okay. who has the background you're looking for, and you reach out to the candidate proactively. That's the passive candidate. So oftentimes, as you can imagine, those passive candidates who aren't actively out there looking for a new position, they're oftentimes very happy where they are because they have high drive. They're doing very well. But in some cases, you can actually track them. You can find them. You can can bring them into your candidate pool by showing them how the opportunity that you offer them is greater than what they're doing now. Oh, I like that.
1: Okay. So this is huge for anybody out there who's looking for a candidate. It sounds like what Chris is saying is it's better for you to maybe hunt for that ideal candidate rather than you sit back and, and, or, or rather put an ad and, and hope they apply for this ad. Is this what you mean?
0: Oh goodness. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. That is the first piece looking for those, again, those, those more passive candidates. And you're exactly right, Tom, for the, the second piece. That's where we make sure that the person not a job hopper. So they have some longevity in the positions they fill because you're exactly right. If they've been jumping from job to job, chances are when the going gets tough, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of the pattern that we've established. The best predictor, of course, as you know, of future behavior is previous behavior. So during the hiring process, we're gathering data about the way that that person has behaved in the past that will allow us to predict how they're going to perform for us going forward. And that's a big piece of making sure that they're not a job hopper, if you will. Now, of course, when someone comes out of school, they're going to be, they're going to take, take maybe a year or two to kind of figure out exactly what they want to do. So the first couple of jobs will allow that a little bit. But after, by the time we're getting into the third and fourth position, we want to see a little bit more longevity in the positions that they've held. And then, of course, the third indi- indicator is the person is able to provide some sort of metrics to show that they have been successful previously, just to prove, to, to back up that they have done well. Whatever that is, that satisfies you, uh, the, the the business owner. So, there, whatever metrics they're able to give you to show that they have done well, when you take those three pieces all together, the person who's again, they're not an active job seeker, they're they're passive. They're making you're making sure that you're looking for somebody who's not a job hopper, and, and they're able to provide you metrics to show that they have done well. That tends to predict, as you can imagine, a higher overall drive score.
1: Yeah, I, I love this. So for all of you listening and watching out there, when we talk about metrics, what we're talking about is the difference between someone saying, uh, you know, I was a top producing sales rep or I hit target versus someone who says, uh, I helped uh, increase revenue from 100,000 per month to 300,000 per month within a uh, six month period. Exactly. Right. Something like that. Is that what you mean? Yeah.
0: Correct. Exactly.
1: Or I, exactly. I, 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 I increased the average revenue per customer by forty-eight percent in only a three-month time period. For example, so
0: something more tangible that you can that you can exactly, exactly. Okay. exactly, exactly. And another indicator, you know, in terms of the the, the resume, the resume question, um, oftentimes business owners, especially when they're first hiring a salesperson, they're they're saying to themselves, you know, I need somebody who's going to hit the ground running for me. And that first hire is so critical. The person needs to do well. Oftentimes they need to start doing well very quickly. And Mm -hmm. so as that business owner is reviewing resumes, in many cases, they can be attracted, as you can imagine, to a salesperson who has substantial experience, oftentimes at a very large company thinking, okay, great. This person's had great experience at this very large company. Surely they've had world-class sales training. Surely they will bring that same degree of success to bear for us. But then the key question in that situation is to make sure that we figure out what really led to that person's success. Was it their own effort or was it really the fact that they had in that case all that brand recognition and collateral material that really opening the doors for them? So, so sometimes finding somebody that's had experience at maybe a smaller company, if you are a smaller company, and they've dealt, they've dealt with the challenges that are inherent in that situation where they don't necessarily have all those advantages that they're able to to. Uh, to um, take advantage of when, when they have a very large co- company that they're working for, oftentimes that can be very helpful. The person that has maybe two to three years of relevant previous ex- experience at a similarly sized company, combine that with a higher overall drive score. Now you've got the person with the knowledge. They've had the experience. They've had sales 101 and they have the passion to execute on that knowledge, if you will. Oh, this is, this is great.
1: Um, good stuff here, I love this. Um, so can we talk a little bit about uh, you know a screening process? You know, So we're starting to now kind of screen candidates a little bit, can you kind of uh, walk us through that?
0: Oh, sure. So the first step is often the resume review uh, using the techniques that we just discussed then moving on to a phone screen typically of some kind. And ideally in a phone screen, I like to start out with walking the per- person or have the person walk me through their resume if I have not yet done so. And you can learn a lot about the person Uh, their levels of discernment, and things that are really causing them right now to be attracted to to your position. So for example, I like to, for each position the person has held as we're walking through the resume, ask them to answer three questions. Number one, give me the basic job description. What did you do in that role? Number two, if you were on a sales team, where did you rank on the team? Of course, the competitive person will know exactly where they ranked on the team. And number three, what got you to move on to the next position? And I'm sure when you've asked that question over the years, what got you to move on to the next position? You've heard that people sometimes occasionally have what we might consider to be uh, somewhat guarded answers. You know, things like, oh, there were some misunderstandings with my salary. There were some differences of opinion with my supervisor. Sort of uh, guarded answers like that. If you do find yourself- Misalignment and goals. Exactly. Yes, the misalignment. If you find yourself hearing those guarded answers, we recommend using what we call the magic wand question. Okay, if we had a magic wand and we could change three things about that job. So you would have never wanted to leave. What would those three things be? And of course, at that point, that's when you start to get a kernel of the truth. Well, let's mm-hmm. see, uh, I would have gotten paid more, my assistant wouldn't have quit, I wouldn't have yelled at the sales manager, that they give you something you can start to dig in on. And then at that point, Tom, the key is to find what other examples you can find of that behavior, if it is a negative behavior in the past, because the more consistent examples of the behavior we can find previously, the more reliable, I can predict it will emerge for us going forward. So that's what I recommend in terms of proceeding through the person's resume. And then at that point, getting into maybe at least one question for each of the three elements of drive, need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism. Oftentimes, if the person is going to be cold calling, I recommend to asking at least one confidence question just to get confident that this person is going to be worthy of your time in the remainder of the process. And then at that point, deciding whether to use an assessment. Of course, our assessment is the drive test, but deciding at that point whether to put the candidate through an assessment. And then at that point, you have three great pieces of data to decide, okay, number one, do you bring the person into the one-on-one interview at all? And number two, if you do, how do you structure that interview to make the best use of the candidate's time and your time?
1: I love this. All right. So, so much to to unpack here, but let's, so um, when we talk about So I'm a big believer in asking behavioral questions during an interview, right? I I think the worst questions are, uh, what did you do there? What was your role? What was your title? What were your responsibilities? Those to me are the most useless questions on the planet that could be be manufactured and they're just scripted and you go, oh, on paper, this person looks great. I'm Mm -hmm. more interested in, you know, tell me about a time when. Describe yes. a situation when, and not just once, but, and then another time. And then how yep. about another time when you had to do that, right? So I'm into asking behavioral questions and sales specific. So what, what yes. are some great examples of, of uh, behavioral questions that, that people could ask that are linked to those three
0: elements of drive? Of course. So for a need for achievement, what kinds of sacrifices have you had to make to be successful? What does that person consider to be a sacrifice? Was it maybe they had to work a couple weekends last year or was it something more substantial? Now compare that to the kinds of sacrifices you've seen your time. I, your I top worked top. through lunch last Thursday. Wow. wow. Okay. Well, maybe, what, what, what else? Give me some more examples. You know, just again, <laughs> one of the things that you'll, you'll notice, and I, I really like the fact that you said that too, that you're willing to ask the person to give you example after example because that's when you can really be sure when they give you several examples and just be patient. Because again, it's all about making sure that the match is right on both sides. I've had people say to me, Dr. Croner, you're really nice, but these questions are hard. And yes, that's the point. That's the point. We wanna make sure that the match is right because psychologically, when you think of the demands on a hunter salesperson, you wanna make sure that, that, again, that the person that we're putting in that role is going to be able to shoulder those demands, if you will.
1: It's like, pal, you know, if you can't get through this interview, you're not gonna get through a, a sales call. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Bingo. So um, for need for achievement, another question for need for achievement. uh, Tell me about the greatest goal you've ever accomplished professionally. Really have the person flesh that goal out for you. Then you can reflect back to them. You have to be proud of that. How do you intend to top it? Again, the person high in need for achievement has that plan to top it and they're excited about the opportunity to tell you about it. For competitiveness, when was the last time you were competitive? Tell me about, give me an example of that. Oftentimes the person will describe maybe they were at the gym a couple of days ago and they saw somebody start to lap them and they just wanted to run faster than them. In that case, we always want to bring it back to the world of work. When was the last time you were competitive at work? What did that look like? Again, we want to look for the person that relishes competition. That If there's not a competition, they will make a competition. They just enjoy it. They just enjoy wanting to, again, to kind of rise to the top of their their class, if you will. For optimism, tell me about a time when you remain persistent even though everyone else around you gave up. Now tell me about another time. Again, just getting those consistent examples.
1: This is great stuff. I love this. I hope everybody out there has taken a lot of notes. Rewind it. Watch this again. Listen to it again, because this is super valuable stuff. So as we, as we wrap up here, Dr. Croner, can you please share with us? I know you talked about the sales drive test, and I love this, and we, we, we've used this on many occasions, and I think it's great. Um, when's the right time? When's the right time to do that assessment? Is it pre-interview, post-interview? Is it after hmm. uh, uh, you know, a first or second round of interviews? When's the right time to do this sales drive test as part of the whole um, interview process or screening process?
0: Good question. Of course, the broad answer is as early as possible to make sure that, of course, we're spending time with candidates that have the highest potential, if you will. So as you can imagine, companies, if they're hiring a large number of salespeople, say hundreds, they'll oftentimes use it very early in the process, right right at the beginning. Uh, oftentimes the companies are a little bit smaller. They're not necessarily hiring hundreds of salespeople, maybe between five and 10 a year. Uh, they'll they'll use the assessment a little bit more toward just as I suggested earlier, starting out with a resume review, then do a phone screen, then use the assessment after the phone screen at that point, at least before the one-on-one interview. Uh, if you didn't want to wait, we simply rec- recommend that you can use it toward the end of the process, but just give yourself the opportunity. To interview the person one more time after the results are available, just to make sure that you clear up any potential surprises, if you will, that may emerge on the assessment. So that's what we recommend. Ideally, before the one-on-one interview that again, when you do sit down with the candidate, you've got your game plan. If you wish, to make sure that the uh, the time is being spent most wisely, if you will, on both sides. So it
1: sounds like you're recommending to use the the sales
0: drive test n-
1: not to kind of confirm your thoughts around how they were in the interview, but more to avoid you wasting time going through the interview. Is that right?
0: Yes, essentially. Now, if you do have a candidate that, again, cure two for, you know, up to this point in the hiring process, you really uh, had a good feeling about the person, uh, they, they've done very well on the previous stages, and you still want to interview them, you certainly can. I never say any assessment is the be all end all. I mm. simply like to look at the assessment as a bit like having uh, your consumer report, if you will, before you make a major buying decision. It just sort of says, hey, Buyer beware, you know, please heed the warning, if you will, on the assessment, uh, just to the point that, that you're comfortable, because no matter what, it will make you a much more powerful interviewer, because now, as you can imagine, you're uncovering dynamics going on underneath the surface that you might not otherwise have seen at all before, and no matter what, you're going into that new hire with your eyes wide
1: open. I love this. Uh, Dr. Croner, this has been amazing. Thank you, Chris, Um, for all of you out there. I hope you have found tremendous value in this episode of the Selling in Asia podcast. We're going to have Dr. Croner's information in the show notes. So feel free to reach out to him if there's anything you need around this topic. Thank you, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure for me as well. really appreciate the opportunity to be of service. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye now.